Welcome to the Church Times podcast. Try 10 issues for £10 or two months access to our website and apps also for £10. Go to churchtimes.co.uk forward slash new hyphen reader. Cole Arthur Riley is a writer, liturgist and poet and the creator of Black Liturgies, a project seeking to integrate concepts of dignity, lament, rage, justice, rest and liberation with literature and spirituality. On this week's podcast, she talks about her New York Times best-selling debut book, This Here Flesh, Spirituality, Liberation and the Stories That Make Us. An extract from the book is published in the 1st of April edition of the Church Times. Cole Arthur Riley is in conversation with Chinny MacDonald, director of Theos, whose latest book is God is Not a White Man and Other Revelations, published by Hodder and Stoughton. This Here Flesh is published by John Murray Press and is available to buy from the Church House Bookshop for the discounted price of £14.99. Welcome. Um, it is an absolute privilege to be uh, in conversation with you today. Um, I had the privilege of having an advanced read of your book um, and I can honestly say it is one of the most stunning, beautiful books I've ever read. And it's one of those that I will keep coming back to. Um, I've been reading it again in preparation for this evening and just been struck by just the beauty um, in it. For those who haven't read it yet, we'll have a, an opportunity shortly to hear you read from it. But I wanted to ask you how you feel it's been received, you know, when your book is out there in the world. I think probably a sign that it's done well is being an instant New York Times bestseller. But tell us about the process of writing the book and how, what it's like for you now that it's out mm-hmm. in the world. Yes. First, firstly, thank you. I'm honored to share space with you. So I, I'm just kind of in shock that you read my book at all, let alone twice. So I'm looking forward to speaking with you tonight. But yeah, so I, I began Black Liturgies, which is a online project where I'm integrating written prayer with Black thought. And I began that about a year, a little over a year and a half ago. And that's what really opened doors for me into publishing, into the possibility of even writing a book. But before that, I had always loved writing. I'd always dreamed of writing a book. I studied writing in undergrad, and but I didn't quite know how to make it happen. And so Black Liturgies I, is, was like an ec- excellent entrance to allow me to do so. So when I started writing, I wanted to honor Black Liturgies. So the chapters of this book are a lot of the things that Black Liturgies is grounded on, things like lament, things like rage and rest and liberation and belonging. But I approached it through the lens of my family, through through intergenerational storytelling and trying to make sense of a human experience of these ideas as opposed to just a merely philosophical understanding. And so, yeah, I didn't think that this would be the book that I would write. I didn't think that I'd end up writing so intimately about my family and about myself, but something about interviewing my father and my grandma along the way kept kind of pulling me into more honesty. (laughs) It was kind of forcing me to become honest about a lot of things that maybe I knew my family had been formed by, 
you know how there are those kind of quiet kind of secrets like stories that everyone knows but you're not sure how you know or when you first learned it well writing was the first time I was really asking the bearers of those stories my father and my grandma to to share it with me in their own words and in a way I couldn't look away and I couldn't I, I, I couldn't go deep into them without going deep into them in my writing and honoring it that way. It's a very intimate book. So, you, you know, there are stories about yourself and also your family and your family history. And you write about how your father um, raised you, I think, in, in a house of stories or a house mm-hmm. of storytelling. Um, so were these stories that you grew up with or was it in the process of writing the book that you kind of came to to know them and what's mm-hmm. it like for those stories now to be out in the world and to be read by so many people how is that feeling um for you in terms of kind mm-hmm. of you feeling honorable or uh, how does it feel some of these stories are stories that I had heard again and again you know I tell a story of my my father running from his father in a kidnapping attempt really and I had heard that story many many times but then many of them I'd never heard because I was trying to, uh, maybe I'd heard kind of a general version of them, but I was trying to pull out the very specific, the very particular in the stories. And I think most people aren't used to telling their stories that way. They're not used to people caring, sadly, caring enough for to allow them to go deep into kind of the particulars of the story or these kind of fragments of story that maybe alone seem insignificant, but I think when kind of curated, their voice is kind of amplified. So I would ask my, you know, I would, I would ask my dad, tell me a story about lament and I found it it would be really hard for him to do so without making kind of generalized statements you know about you know sadness and and instead of you know really taking me there and I had to say I had to give him permission and and say like I I I don't want to hear what you think about lament I want you to take me to a moment where you felt true sadness and you know and I'll wait with you until you find that moment and I'll try to offer care and support after that but I'm interested in the moment however insignificant it seems to you but yeah we're not good at that we're not good at particularity (laughs) when telling our own stories so in that way a lot of them felt fresh because I was going into like detail and picking out moments in a story as opposed to an overarching story but together, I think you get a sense of still an overarching story. And how does that feel now that it's out in the world? Um, it feels incredibly bearing. Um, mm. I feel I feel raw. Uh, maybe you exper- I'm sure you experience this in your own writing, but i'm I'm a private person. I'm, I come from a very private family. And so, you know, this was a, a shared cost to put this out in the world, a shared familial cost. I'm so grateful that my family trusted me with these stories because we're not people who would normally share them, you know? Mm-hmm. So it's been um, it's been hard. And, and in a way, I've had to find ways to, like, I feel like this season is so narrowed in on me. I'm having to speak about myself a lot and, like, promoting a book is just so strange like it's just so um it just revolves around everything feels like it's revolving around you so I've had to really create intentional moments where I'm outside where I'm positioning myself almost 
in a kind of smallness compared to like the largeness of the world around me, you know, like listening to the birds and you know, <laughs> listening to the wind pass through the the trees and just something about that tension of like people being so close to me and then like pulling away and kind of feeling this space to breathe. And it's, it's been really healing. I don't know if I'm articulating that way, but articulating that well, but all that to say it's, it's hard and I'm trying to find ways to kind of decrease anxiety and exist mm -hmm. in it and take up the space that I've been denied while also caring for myself. Yeah. Absolutely. Well, should we hear a bit from the book that you'd like to read us? Sure. Um, I'll read from um, the, the second chapter is on place. I'll read a bit from that. My grandma says that in her 20s, she was looking for peace and found it back in Harlem. As a child, her Manhattan-born soul had been exiled and transplanted to rural Pennsylvania before she knew where where was. We were the Black family that lived down Cemetery Lane, she says, a place marred by death surrounded by white people who were pleased with them in the way you can be pleased with your supper not being too spicy. Negroes who knew their place, she says. When she finally returned to the city, the ground shook beneath her for days, but her insides were still like pond water. She got off the A train and a man who looked like her was blowing a sax while his friends slapped a makeshift drum, drum and sang out to her. It was a homecoming and she leaned against the cold wall underground, letting the sound pulse around her. People moved past her like she was the wall, and maybe in ways she was, but not in the sad way, in the no longer a spectacle way. She says New York City allowed her to get lost. Listen, nobody knew if inside I was screaming or steady. I just was, I was a part of everything. I suppose there is a certain safety in that, she was running from a man who had long mistaken obsession for love and also from a sadness that stalked her when she was alone. I think she needed to get lost at first. I won't criticize her for that. Maybe getting lost let her be found on her own terms. It offered a different kind of healing, a place to exhale, to find a manner of anonymity, to experience that dreadful thing we call blending in can be a kind of haven. It is not to become untethered, but to become a part of, to walk a street apprehending you or one small refrain in a holy cacophony. And as the place becomes more familiar, your own selfhood becomes more lucid. There in the place of her origin, my grandma became new, out of a graffiti clad womb singing songs in the subway. Anytime I need to be born again, she says, I just go back to Harlem. Thank you so much, Cole. That was beautiful. And it's just one example of the kind of the way that you often start with stories. Uh, often yeah, it's your father's story or your story or your grandma's story. I say grandma like I'm American. So, <laughs> um, <laughs> um, one of the things I found really striking in the book, and that was an example of it, is the way you weave kind of real literature and art and poetry into your deeply theological reflections. So I wanted to ask about your, how intentional that was. So, you know, who you were influenced by. You talk about Toni Morrison and Beloved, and, and that's where the title of the book comes from, where Baby Suggs and Beloved says, 
in this here place we flesh, flesh that weeps, laughs, flesh that dances on bare feet in grass. And you talk about Alice Walker and the colour purple and James, James Baldwin, but you also talk about Bonhoeffer uh, and Julian of Norwich. Tell us about that kind of weaving of different styles of theology and, and literature together and whether that's something that you intentionally did. It, it was somewhat intentional, mostly because I think that's just who I am. So I, um, I wasn't raised in an overtly Christian home, and it was really in college that I first attended church regularly or was receiving any kind of theological education, anyone telling me, you know, what, a, what doc- doctrine is or what a creed meant. Uh, that was happening for me in college. And simultaneously, I was encountering Black literature for the first time in college. Like I'd never read Toni Morrison before I went to university. I'd never read Alice Walker, um, never even heard of James Baldwin. Uh, that gives you a peek into my education, my my prior education. So college was this kind of strange time where everything felt new. I was a, I'm a first-generation college student. And so everything kind of like melded together in a way. And it was all just new. <laughs> you know, it was home and not home. And so I had a really difficult time like parsing out what I was learning in an English classroom, you know, what I was reading in Beloved, for example, with what I was hearing in a church pew on Sunday. Um, my my spiritual awakening, awakening and my literary awakening were happening at the same time. And I think that absolutely has formed me as a writer because I was trying to find my literary voice at that time and still am. <laughs> and so when I went to write this book, I wanted to honor the fact that it the, the opportunity came from Black liturgies, but still honor my original kind of literary voice and who I am. And when I'm most honest, I think I'm probably more of a writer, a, a writer or an artist than I am a theologian. Um, I don't really think I'm very qualified in terms of theology. I just happened to start this very, you know, s- spiritual account. And so, yes, I wanted to be sure to stay true to the art and try my best at theology, but I knew that, you know, my theology is going to fall short. I'm probably not going to think the same things in 10 years, but what I can, you know, ask myself when I'm 50 years old is, did I, did I try, (laughs) did I try to stay true to myself as an artist? And I I think I did. I I hope my 50-year-old self will say, yes, you've done that, even if the theology is uh or miss sometimes yeah so so that's something that is really interesting because even though it's not necessarily an overtly theological in terms of kind of theological doctrine book there's so much profound theology that comes through so even in the kind of the chapter about place and this idea of bodies and the, the sacred secular divide that is often kind of debated I love that idea that you just said around that all of it melding together kind of there is no kind of sacred secular divide Mm -hmm. and I love the line in the book where you say I want a God who is someplace and you challenge this idea that we can often fall into the trap of in certain kind of um, denominations within Christianity that Christianity is a um, a get out of hell free card it's about a future Mm -hmm. place that is not um, physical tell us about that and the kind of the theological ideas around the physical and the non-physical and the spiritual and potentially how that is kind of I guess made 
vivid in the, I guess, the black experience, mm-hmm. um, which sure. you touch on a little bit as well. Sure. Yeah, the, 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 the earliest Christian spaces that I was finding myself in were trying to kind of convince us of this someday disembodied existence, this promise of a disembodied heaven, or even um, spoke of the soul as kind of divorced from the body. And maybe I felt, maybe I like allowed myself to to be a part of that. But I think I always felt some tension in me. If your your hope for God is limited to the disembodied, to the immaterial, then what does that mean for uh, the very physical oppressive conditions that the world is placing on me now? You know, I do think that forms you. That forms a person to think about, um, think about, and diminish the the physical. In the here and now, when you're thinking about a someday heaven as salvation as being this disembodied experience, so I think I've always been skeptical of it. But again, it was black literature. I could think of um, Toni Morrison's writing of the clearing and beloved. I've um, spoke about this some before, but to me, and not just in resistance to those spaces that I was being formed in, but really almost as like a homecoming. When I read Toni Morrison's Clearing, uh, which if you're not familiar, it's this beautiful intergenerational embodied emotional space of, of refuge for, you know, the ancestors. And, you know, everyone is gathered around this clearing and the children come and the men come and the women come and they're laughing and they're crying and they're dancing. And, and then they all kind of exchange those habits until they collapse in the grass and they listen to that sermon that you just quoted by Baby Suggs. And I think it's so lovely that preceding the sermon is this kind of intergenerational embodied act. It's very earthy, you know, even the fact that the harbor is a clearing, you know, it's not a space of the imag- of, of the imagination, you know, it's a tangible space that they return to, I think is is really beautiful. And I, I want my spirituality to look like that. When I think about what spirituality, I, I, I want my spirituality to contain whatever the clearing had. That's what I want um, for my spirituality, for my relationship with God. And you know what's interesting? Um, before she gives that sermon that you quoted, uh, Toni Morrison says, you know, she didn't, she didn't tell them to go and sin no more. You know, that traditional gospel message. She didn't tell them to go and sin no more. Instead, she gives this ser- this sermon in this year place. We flesh, flesh that weeps, laughs, love it, love it hard. You know, the liver, the beating heart, love it. And I think there's something really beautiful and subversive about that. You know, she didn't tell them the traditional gospel of go and sin no more, which doesn't need to be disembodied, but certainly can be taken that way. But she she espouses a, a a gospel that can't like you can't separate it from the flesh from the physical and that's something i find really interesting the kind of i guess the stories of black enslaved pe- enslaved people who would um gather together in the hush arbors and they would find a, a, a they would read the bible and they would find a spirituality and a christianity that that meant that actually that it was wrong. Uh, God was not happy that they were in in, in slaves. God cared about their physical physical condition, mm-hmm. and not just a future a promise of a future and freedom. I guess you talked a little bit there about kind of intergenerational ideas around ancestors, and that also kind of comes through in the book. 
I wonder if you could help us to understand um, a bit more about that sense of those who have come before us in the Black um, tradition or experience. And you talk a little bit about how the ideas, actually there is an idea of the trauma and the oppression that has come before us and the generations before us has an impact on our uh, us today and we don't necessarily exist um, as individuals without kind of what has come before mm-hmm. and maybe if you could speak into maybe what has happened in the past couple of years in terms of Black Lives Matter and the reckoning with racial justice and what you've kind of learned in that process about your place in history or your place yeah. in your family's genealogy I guess and the yes. impact of trauma. Hmm. I think you know more and more we're we're seeing more and more research come out about you know epigenetics and but i i think the body keeps uh the body the keeps score. the score has mm-hmm. been on the new york times bestseller list for like it seems like ages um now and and so many people are starting to really think about the what trauma does to a body and what inherited trauma does to a body i wanted to not I didn't talk about that so much directly, but it's implied in, in the book. You know, you see my grandma's story and my dad's story, my story kind of mapped on to each other, these these generational things that we pass down intentionally and unintentionally. I, I learned how to cope at, by watching my father cope and, and he wasn't trying to teach me how to cope, but that's how that that was our a familial habit that I inherited in some ways. But I also think there's something to say about the kind of beauty that we inherit, you know, the habits of resistance and delight and people ask me where I find hope and and people keep asking me this, where do I find hope? And I keep saying, I find hope in the people who came before me. I find hope in history, interestingly enough, because something about how they've lived and persevered, I then feel like I, I feel like some part of that is my inheritance as a, as a black woman, I get to inherit their patterns of survival and yeah, and goodness. And um, yeah. And as far as, you know, memory so june jordan she's a a poet she talks a lot about the moral meaning of memory and what it means to forget and what it means to remember and lucille clifton a friend of hers actually she has that kind of famous end of her poem why people be mad at me sometimes and she says they ask me to remember but they want me to remember their memories and i keep on remembering mine and I, i i love that i think the older I get, the more I'm able to see the ways that the oppressor and oppressive systems can kind of co-opt the, the narrative of history and rework it into whatever it sees fit. I mean, it's it's terrifying as you become conscious to it of, oh my, well, you know, what will my children read about this Supreme Court justice nominees? You know, what, what will they read about it? Will it be what was actually happening or will it be some, you know, iteration or mutation of it um anyways to resist that i think i i want to be my own historian i want to be a the a historian in my family i want to preserve the memories that the memories the artifacts what few artifacts we have i want to make sure they're preserved and i want to give the people and my family who come after me an imagination for what it means to interview our elders and, you know, record their mannerisms and the way they speak and these stories so that they can't be dismissed or neglected in the future. Yeah. 
your book um, describes and talks through the Black experience in your own family's history, but it is particularly uh, written, obviously, from the perspective of a Black woman. So I want to talk a little bit about, about um, Black women's bodies. <laughs> um, and you, you say how your dad told you that Black was beautiful. Uh, so I want to ask you how important was your father in shaping your own sense of self or what have you learned about um, the beauty of black women's bodies or what the world says about beauty and blackness yeah. um, and how you've kind of dealt with some of these messages. Mm -hmm. Yeah, my father was just invaluable in terms of, I mean, always lavishing compliments on us and um yeah, I, I didn't realize it at the time, but I do think in hindsight he was preparing us, you know, preparing us to meet a counter narrative in the world of of ugliness, of being too much, of being too loud, of, you know, of, of being too anything. I think he was trying to give us a kind of tool for resistance. Um, and he, I mean, he's just someone who, the way he carries himself, if any, if you're ever, you know, blessed enough to see him on an interview or something like that, like, I I can't say what kind of inner security, inner, you know, insecurities he might possess, but I can say he certainly moves in the world as if he deserves to be here. Um, you know, he, he, he moves in the world as if, like, he's not going to apologize for his presence. He's not going to bow his head and say, oh, I'm sorry for interrupting, you know. Um, he, he has this kind of beautiful confidence that I, I definitely didn't feel like I could access as a child. You know, I was very shy and a bit awkward. And um, But looking to him, I always had this kind of, you know, image of what it meant to be a little more free in my body and I talk about this throughout the book but you know when I was 26 I became sick um and I had to really pay attention to my body as a black woman in ways that I realize the world often will not do you know that many doctor's offices are not going to do I, I realize you know it in like the in the clearest ways I was having these moments where I realized no one's gonna I'd have these rashes for example on my on my on my back and I realized no one's gonna people will not pause and search my back for as long as I need them to to actually see but you know they'll give it a quick look and so there are these very practical things in my journey with chronic illness and I started realizing, like, Cole, if you don't pay attention to your body, no one else is. And if you don't act in protection of your body, few people will. And I hate that as Black women, we have to constantly be in that position. It's not fair, you know, but it's almost like, what choice do we have? But to kind of protect ourselves and, and, and be aware of the body. I guess being honest, when I came to those bits about your illness, I found them quite scary. Um, I think the idea of um, the pain that you're in, but also the kind of lack of freedom. And I guess uh, thinking, thinking about the opposite of that, which is this idea of this strong black woman who's able to kind of, you know, shoulder um, yes. all of uh, the terribleness that the world throws at uh, us. Tell us a bit more about that kind of um, that sense of essentially being helpless or mm -hmm. that kind of real vulnerability? Oh, it was, it, I mean, it's exhausting, you know. Uh, I'll, I'll, I'll give you an, an example. So I was 
at the Cleveland Clinic, I, this very faint, prestigious clinic in, in the U.S., um, having a lot of testing done. And at the end, I, I was glancing at the doctor's notes. And one of the notes was, you know, um, African-American woman with a monotone affect. Um, like, it, like uh, he basically said, I, I wasn't showing emotion. And I thought, why is that even on my chart? Like, what a weird note to make. And and I, as I was driving away, it was just haunting me. The next appointment I went in, I thought, you know what? Do whatever you need to do to cry. And like, like just tr- try, you know? And so I go in and I cry. I, I, I bear myself. And the doctor is kind of looking in shock as if he couldn't fathom my pain without me proving it, you know? <laughs> I had to prove it with some kind of emotional demonstration um, that frankly left me raw afterward. But he, it wasn't enough to say that my pain was an 8 out of 10, you know, if I was seeming strong and composed because I was reinforcing in his mind this kind of strong black woman you know portrait maybe um, I can only assume right and after that I noticed oh man doctors treat you different when you cry <laughs> why do I have to why do I have to prove like why do I have to prove it um and I started actually to bring my white husband in to every appointment with me and one time a uh, an, an older white friend uh who is a, he's an academic and, you know, (laughs) has a lot of, uh, you know, gravity when he enters a room. And I hate that I even needed to have him accompany my body in order to be taken seriously. But you reach a point where you just, you know, you do feel helpless. You think it's my voice alone isn't enough to protect my body. I'm going to need, you know, the advocacy of a white person to shame. And yeah, it's been so, so exhausting so exhausting um i'm i'm can imagine that there are people watching who have experienced similar things and you can almost make yourself feel a bit yeah you can almost question if your perception of reality is real until you start to talk to other people and you think okay i'm not being dramatic it's truly difficult to be taken seriously as a black woman yeah yeah, I absolutely feel that. Um, I've written about this elsewhere, but I, uh, you know, there are all these horrific statistics about b- poor black maternal health, yeah. um, how you know, black women are more likely to die in childbirth. And I had a, a really traumatic experience with my first birth and I'm about to give birth again in a few weeks. But I really recognise that I I really wanted my white husband to speak for me um, in that situation because, you know, Pride aside, ego aside, I wanted to stay alive and I wanted my baby to stay alive. And sometimes um, we have to, we don't have to, but we are forced into positions where we play into, you know, the the messages around around the world about who is valued and who is worth listening to. Mm -hmm. Um, Speaking about gender then, so how do you see God and picture God? Um, I, I noticed in the book how you use different pronouns to describe God at various points. So sometimes she, sometimes they, sometimes he. Um, I found in the process of writing my book that it was at that point that I decided I could no longer use male pronouns for God. Mm-hmm. And that was a deliberate decision, I, even though I had all my life. Tell us about the different pronouns and um, what yeah. was going through your thought process. Yeah, I when I thought about writing a book that was for kind of spiritual liberation or you know, hoping that it did some of that in the world. I did want to kind of liberate our portrait of God a bit, or at least give people an imagination for like a gender fluidity, a a 
gender curiosity in in God. Um, I had a feeling that it would, you know, rub some people the the wrong way. I think it's really uncomfortable to, yeah, it can be really uncomfortable for some people to to have any kind of fluidity around God or any kind of uncertainty or even mystery around God. But for me, just speaking for myself, I've never been someone that has felt super clear about the divine, about who God is. Um, and so for me, having that kind of, those shifting um, pronouns allowed me to be true to myself in the writing process. I tried not to think too much about it, honestly, because I found if I did, I ended up kind of making it very stereotypical when I used she, her, and when I used yeah. him. And so I tried to really just, you know, w where I was in the moment or on that particular day, you know, I think I just pray to a very diverse God. You would think it wouldn't be so hard to, to have an imagination for that, for people who believe in, say, the Trinity. But um, yeah, it has ruffled some feathers more than I thought it would. Um, but I really intend it to be this like liberating experience of the divine as opposed to like a narrowing in on what exactly, who exactly and what exactly God is. Yeah. Yeah. And you talk about rending whiteness from the face of God being more than just about the images um, that, we've, that we see and we create. How, how else can we? Mm-hmm separate whiteness from God yeah I think in in the same way that you know we say there's many of us say that there's you know not a sacred secular di divide I think we have to think about the secular if we're going to rend that from the image of God we need to rend whiteness from everything you know or really parse out what what is you know what does whiteness do how does it operate in the world I think in the book I give examples of you know, say the, the American Western film of, you know, it's just kind of white bravado and um, mm -hmm. white heroism at its finest often. Um, and and uh, what does that mean for how we view God? Because we're formed by our art. We are probably more than we're formed by the scriptures, if we're honest. So what does it mean if, you know, we're uh, constantly ingesting white heroes, you know? I think... Um, also, we do need alternatives. So uh, there's a scholar, Christina Cleveland, who's just written a, a book called God is a Black Woman. And she um, writes it because she's taken this pilgrimage through France to visit different Black Madonnas along mm -hmm. the way. Um, it's, yeah, it's a beautiful journey that she lets us in. And she kind of I mean, she better than I could ever articulate now. She unwind as she's traveling to these different Black Madonnas, you know, um, Our Lady of Good Death, and, you know, all these very um, like beautiful, um, beautiful Black women who Black portraits of, you know, divine energy. Um, she unwinds kind of a white male god how she's been formed in terms of the image of white male God and then enters kind of the warmth and embrace of, you know, the, the black Madonna and what that kind of journey, you know, again and again, she kind of rips us from the formation, her formation of a white male God into kind of the shadow of, of, of a new black Madonna. It's beautifully done. I highly recommend it. Um, but yeah, I think she would say it better than I, better than I could. Yeah. <laughs> So I find that yeah, obviously, obviously, I find it really interesting because I don't wrote a book about it myself. But I think 
one of the problems as well um, with the white male god is how it is exclusive. So how lots of black women, you know, in 2022 are leaving churches because of white supremacy and patriarchy. And often a lot of them are turning towards kind of African diasporic religions where you have female deities who are strong and who are powerful and in who they can see themselves. So I think it's a real issue for the church um, to, to kind of deal with. One kind of final question for you from me, which is around, so we've talked a little bit about whiteness. Um, by contrast, you have this idea of blackness. So what do you mean, what does blackness mean to you? No. Um, you write about how, um, this is a lovely moment when you talk about you, when you pass another black person in an, in an all white area, there's this shared sense of story and knowing, like even like we've never met, but I feel like you're my sister, <laughs> I know you, um, my yeah. sister. Um, mm -hmm. What in that kind of, con what in that context yeah. is blackness? Mm -hmm. You know, okay, I'll, I'll, I'll maybe answer this two ways. So Willie James Jennings, who I know I, I, I know you're familiar with, but um, is a, a scholar at, at Yale right now. And, and he, he has written a beautiful book called, you know, After Whiteness, but is, has been writing about this for a long time. And he talks about whiteness as like a, um, a distorted image of oneself in the world. And then when, it, but it's not merely perception, it's when you then have the power to to implant that perception into the minds and systems of others. So it's both the, the distorted per perce perception and the power to kind of disseminate it and have it thrive. And I, I talk about in my book, whiteness as a force. Now, blackness, I don't think it's always in contrast to whiteness, not anymore, maybe initially, because that was the formation of race. You know, we wouldn't have had black people without white people um, in terms of uh, the racial imagination. So I like to think of, you know, blackness as maybe being a a recentering, <laughs> a, a recentering of not just our own image, but a kind of diversity of images in the world and upholding of a diversity of images in the world. And I think we do that by honoring the particularity of black experience. Now, if I'm detaching it only from whiteness, like I don't think blackness is the opposite of whiteness. I'll say that. I think blackness can is has been a way for, you know, many of us to reclaim the dignity that has been withheld from us, but also um, pass on kind of memories and, and stories of what it's meant to survive a world that's not always for us. Yeah, I, but I think that blackness is is a multitude. It's to me, blackness is far bigger than whiteness. You know, it can be a counter to whiteness, but I think it can expand that. Maybe that, maybe that's my own bias. But I do think it, it is almost more expansive to me. Whiteness is very uninteresting and very kind of singular, and, and blackness is a multitude. It's very diverse in its expression. I don't know if that resonates with you or um, is coming across. Absolutely, absolutely. I think, yeah, and white, whiteness is exclusive by nature, and maybe there's an inclusivity in, in blackness that is, is is different. Okay, we've got about 10 minutes left. We've got a question that's come in that says, and what was your first experience of liturgy in church? And when did you realise these words were insufficient for your experience of faith? I had, after I graduated 
from college, I began working for an Episcopal, Episcopalian church, an Episcopal church. And that was the first time I think, I mean, I had encountered liturgy in other churches, but that was the first time I encountered kind of the f- formal liturgical expression and kind of the rites. And I was in a season of really deep depression and there was something about liturgy for me personally that felt really restful. You know, I, I didn't need to have the words to say when I walked through the doors every Sunday and Tuesday and Wednesday for that matter. I didn't always need to have the word. There was something really restful and freeing about kind of having this collect this shared form as this shared form to approach the divine that I could just enter as I could. And so I loved it and I loved the beauty of it. And I think I'd always kind of wondered how much of myself was in it, though. And it was the summer of 2020, the same summer I started Black Liturgies, that that kind of voice became louder in my head. You know, I was in a um, a virtual church service the Sunday after George Floyd was um, murdered. And the liturgist that week, the the person who did the prayers of the people, lovely lovely little white woman (laughs) who I care about deeply but I know um I knew even before she started speaking like these prayers of the people weren't going to be for me you know and they weren't because they were grounded in her a a very white response they were grounded in shock they were grounded in confession and you know here I am say here I am and if I'm being honest, I was thinking, I, I don't I don't feel like I need to participate in this confession. I feel like I deserve an apology, you know? And you know, is there and I, I eventually just closed my laptop altogether because I realized that there was something beautiful about what was happening, but they weren't my prayers. They weren't prayers of my people, not that Sunday. That wasn't the stirrings of my heart. I wasn't shocked, you know? Um, and so I, I I wanted words that made sense of that. I also was in a lot of Christian spaces that were a bit entrenched in toxic positivity and and maybe didn't have the kind of range for Black grief and lament and anger that I needed them to. And so I created Black liturgies just hoping, you know, I could find community or, you know, bring together people who were maybe having the same realization as I did that like in this season, a liturgy written by Thomas Cranmer in the 16th century, when I know what was happening to my ancestors in the 16th century, you know, there are seasons when that becomes very difficult to, to pray with one voice. And I was looking for people who were maybe feeling similarly. Yeah, absolutely. And I know that lots of people are benefiting from that space that you've created. Um, there are a couple of questions that I'll um, put, put together that have come in um, from those who are watching how as a white male can I engage with the black female experiences you're talking about is that possible mm-hmm. and similarly um, as a white minister with a fully white congregation in the UK do you have any recommendations of how to use this book as a book study or I'd love for my church to read this book mm-hmm. so yeah engaging as a white male engaging as a white church yes um, well hello to you both and I'm glad that you're thinking I'm glad that you're asking the questions I mean to the person who asks as a white male I, I would say yes I do think it's possible I know there are people who say you know I can never understand I can and I understand the sentiment I, I really do and I appreciate it in many ways but sometimes I feel like it keeps white people from 
really entering the pain because they think I could never get it. When really I think, um, and Bully James Jennings says this also, like actually my anger is shareable because there is something about the human experience that at our best we, you know, should operate in defense of the dignity of other people and of the dignity of ourselves. Like there's something of just being human that I think allows a white, even a white male to understand some of, you know, my discontent. <laughs> so I, I, yeah, I, I personally have a bit of hope for that. Um, I think it involves a lot of decentering though. And I, and I know that that's very difficult. If you've been formed in whiteness, it's very difficult to decenter your own experiences and responses and to, to just enter a story of a person to enter to center a black woman <laughs> I, I i mean i have white people who follow me on black liturgies and they find it difficult sometimes to think about the liturgy not in terms of you know what does it mean for them but what does it mean to my black neighbor to pray these words so yes i think if you're able to decenter decenter yourself and you have company on the journey i think you can enter the experience of a black person to some extent and you know even in terms of solidarity, you don't need to understand it in its fullness to have compassion and learn from it. And to the person who wants to do a book study, that's wonderful. Mm -hmm. Never imagined any church would want to do a book study on this. So you must run a very, yeah, lovely church. Um, and thank you. I think it's possible. I didn't create discussion questions or anything like that to go through it. But I think maybe one way to do it would be to ask people to travel into their own stories as they're encountering the stories that are in this book you know what what does what has lament look like for you and not in terms of some like vulnerability olympics where everyone's just burying themselves but even as kind of individual reflection in a group setting um what does it mean to approach these concepts and story with each other yeah. i love the idea of a vulnerable vulnerability olympics <laughs> I think final question, with such a large following on Instagram, how do you protect yourself from drawing your worth from your social media identity? Yes, uh, it's, um, yes, it has been humbling. I absolutely thought I would be like above it all. You know, <laughs> when I started Black Liturgies, I like knew very little about social media truly and engage very little so I was like this isn't going to affect me you know like I'm not a people pleaser and I'm not really interested in expanding my platform so but I was completely wrong completely naive you know the algorithms are made by very smart people and mm -hmm. they yeah um, it's very difficult and so I know this isn't practical for everyone but when I got to about 10,000 followers I realized I, I was just very concerned with how it was forming me um, candidly. And I got rid of my smartphone um, and and now have a bit more distance from it. Again, I know that's a very privileged thing to say. Not everyone can do this, but if you can and you're, you have some kind of public facing voice, I, rec I recommend it. I think people have different tolerances maybe for it. And I'm realizing my tolerance for being in kind of like public <laughs> being a public facing voice is like very small <laughs> on social media and so I, I kind of did the most extreme thing and got rid of my smartphone but I think there are probably boundaries in between <laughs> that you could set up <laughs> um, but for me it's just helps for me to like step away throughout the day if I open you know 
Black with the Black Liturgy's Instagram, it's because I know I have time to engage and honor the stories that people are sending me with kind of the integrity it demands. Yeah, that's the biggest thing I've done at least. Oh, thank you. I, maybe we can add in one 60 second answer because I want to end on this question actually. Are you hopeful for the future of spiritual communities? Yes, I am. I am because I think we have access to more stories, increasing access to stories. And I really, I do have a lot of hope in young people who, you know, yeah, we're all being formed by social media and that's scary. But I, I do think that at the same time, there's some real listening that's taking place right now that I think that is going to bode well for future spiritual communities. I think we're planting seeds for, I hope, thriving. So I'm not an optimist, but I'm optimistic about this. Thank you so much, Cole. Um, I've loved talking to you. There's so much that I'd love to talk to you about, but we've run out of time. Um, congratulations on an absolutely stunning book. Thank you. Um, and looking forward to having more conversations with others in the UK um, um, about all that you um, have brought in this book and looking forward to seeing you hopefully in a few months time in the summer. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of the Church Times podcast. You can find more news, analysis, comment and book reviews on our website, churchtimes.co.uk. If you are not yet a subscriber to The Church Times, you can try your first 10 issues for just £10. You'll get the paper delivered to your door every Friday, plus full access to our website and digital archive. Go to churchtimes.co.uk forward slash subscribe to find out more.